0: So well done, you've made it almost to the end of your first uh, full day of meditation on the retreat. And I'd like to start, uh, proceed my talk this evening by just asking you to do a little exercise. So you might want to close your eyes for this, it's up to you. But just take a moment to go inside and... Whatever kind of experience you've been having today, and uh, you know you've, it's been a mixture for all of us, I'm sure. Just see if there's something that you um, that you can remember from today that has brought you a sense of appreciation or gratitude. So something it may be. Um, something you've seen or connected with an experience you've had internally might have been a um, an interaction with a person and just taking a moment to go inside and find something some little piece of your experience today that brought you a sense of gladness or appreciation Maybe remembering uh, what it was like at the time. Bringing back the sights, the sounds. Just casting your mind back into that moment. Reconnecting. And as you do that, then noticing the feelings that come up. Noticing how it feels in the mind and in the heart when you do that. Perhaps remembering what it was like at the time as you registered that this thing was happening. And also what it's like to send your mind back there now. And see whether perhaps there's a a brightening of the mind or a sense of ease, of gladness. And if any of these sorts of feelings arise, just savour them for a moment and really drink them in. ready, you can slowly open your eyes and come back into the room. So I I really hope that uh, each of you was able to connect with something, um, that this action of turning the mind towards what's there to appreciate is something that, uh, you know, it, it reveals all sorts of things to us, perhaps, that we sometimes forget about. gets hot in the hot seat. So I wanted to talk tonight a bit about um, two qualities that are very much interrelated um, that are really part of the entirety of our practice. So our practice is not just uh, the sitting in meditation on the cushion as I see it it's a, it's a sort of holistic thing that embraces the whole of life um, and the meditation the m- mindfulness it, it, it flows between the cushion and activity and back to stillness and so on so these qualities are gratitude and generosity and Sometimes we can see them a bit in the same way as loving-kindness or kindness and goodwill that, we, that Jenny uh, guided us in a practice around this afternoon. We can see them as kind of things that we add on to, uh, to kind of spice up the practice when it's getting a bit uh, dry and tedious. But actually they're really fundamental to the whole approach to this cultivation of the mind. Um, sometimes, uh, in, in a particularly in a Buddhist monastery, like where I lived for some years, people will come to the monastery and they'll say, oh, I can't meditate, so I just practice generosity. And I don't really see them as uh, alternative practices. It's like um, they both sort of inform one another, and I hope that will become clearer in the course of... In the course of my talk. So, generosity is something that if you come to a retreat center like this, you often hear just talked about at the end of the retreat uh, when people talk about dana. And that can create the impression that it's just a sort of add on thing. But actually, the Buddha spoke about it as the first step in spiritual practice so uh, we've talked about this word bhavana or mental development and there's a there's a traditional um, kind of graduation of the practice that actually starts with dana or generosity and then moves through ethical conduct uh, which we also spoke a bit about last night and then on to mental cultivation and the reason that that the path starts with generosity, is that it's, the, it's such a natural uh, activity of beings and it opens the heart, it brings joy, and uh, joy is a, is a good place to start the practice from. The mind that's happy and open is uh, receptive to teaching. And gratitude has much the same property that it relaxes and opens the mind. So the Buddha actually described, uh, He later on I'll talk about the, his, his uh, list of the highest blessings, but amongst these highest blessings, uh, he counted um, contentment and gratitude and generosity. And they're natural expressions of the mind that's imbued with goodwill that we were talking about this afternoon. And I know a lot of you have practiced uh, mindfulness in various forms and John Kabat-Zinn who's the the fa- founder of mainstream mindfulness as some of you will know he talks about seven basic attitudes that are uh, underlying mindfulness practice um, which include things like uh, non-judgment and non-striving and trust, and beginner's mind. But recently he he said that he wanted to add two more things to this list of seven fundamental attitudes, and and that in his next edition of his book he might uh, make this into a list of nine things. And those two things were gratitude and generosity, which I thought was really striking. And what he had to say about that um, is that To bring gratitude to the present moment um, and appreciate just the gift of being alive is something really um, powerful, fundamental. So it's actually quite a a miracle that we're here at all and to have this sense of um, the, the blessedness of life. And last night with the precepts, I was talking about having reverence for life. Sometimes it's much easier to have reverence for the lives of other beings and uh, kind of lose that in relation to our own when we, we're struck with all the challenges of our own life but really just to appreciate uh, that you're alive that this life is precious and then in terms of generosity he talked not only about the joy of giving to other people what makes them happy but also um, giving yourself over to life so there's a just by showing up for life um Embracing it wholeheartedly, there's also an act of generosity in that. So this path of practice is, is not easy, as, as we all know. And yet, uh, the Buddha called it beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, and beautiful in the end. And I'm really interested in how we can make it uh, beautiful and uh, as pleasant as possible as we, as we go along it. Um, How we can create a climate, as I talked about the, the gardening metaphor, a climate that's really favorable to do this work in. There's a saying that I love from the Dalai Lama, I think it's from the Dalai Lama, sometimes everything's attributed to the Dalai Lama and it's not necessarily from him, but saying that there is no path to peace and happiness, peace and happiness is the path. So how can we tread this path which often goes through some very difficult terrain in a way that is uh, as happy and as peaceful as possible. So I mentioned this morning about that people would ask the Buddha uh, how come your your disciples look so happy and he would say it's because they, they are no longer chasing after the future or lost in the past but they've they're contented dwelling contented in the present moment and many years ago I was a not very contented at all uh, Buddhist nun and at that time I heard an an interview on the radio with uh, a man called John Wren Lewis who was a he was retired and he'd spent his entire life, he was an Englishman, he'd spent his entire life as a, as a scientist, an academic, and he was an atheist and uh, had spent his whole life sort of disproving all sorts of religious experience and the existence of God. And then in his retirement, he and his partner went on a, a vacation to Thailand and he met a very friendly young man on a bus who gave him some sweets and the next thing he knew, he woke up in a, in a kind of rural Thai hospital and uh, learned that he had had the most enormous overdose, that the doctors were surprised that it hadn't killed him. Um, so this man had drugged him and, and robbed him, and uh, he had wound up in this hospital. But when he woke up, he discovered that in spite of the fact that his his body was aching and the hospital was really dingy and dirty, the paint was peeling off the walls, he, was, he didn't know really where he was, that he found this experience of joy and perfection in everything that was happening that actually stayed with him after that. He never lost it. So this interview was some years after this experience. And he, he described it as the experience of Joy Without a Cause, which comes from a poem of G.K. Chesterton. And he said that no matter what seemed to be happening in his life or along the line of time, that the joy of simply being here um, was just... The perfection of this moment was so much that that it didn't matter what was happening. And I I sort of thought, gosh, this is what I'm trying to do as a nun, and I'm really having a lot of difficulty with this. And he himself, after this experience, he did a lot of research into different spiritual traditions, including Buddhism. And um, the interviewer on the radio said to him, well, what what do people need to do to uh, get to this kind of experience that you're having? And he said... Oh, well, I've looked into this, and I've looked into the way that different spiritual traditions approach it. And he said, the problem is that we go looking, people go looking for joy. And uh, the very act of looking somehow keeps, keeps it at a distance. And so he said, my, my advice to people is to start by just capturing moments of gratitude and that, that's always stuck with me, this sense of um, capturing moments of gratitude. So it's very, it's very simple. And we don't have to go creating something that's, that's not already there. So how do you capture a moment of gratitude? So the first thing you, that needs to happen is that you need to notice it. <laughs> which is you know we often we're so preoccupied we don't notice things and then when you do notice it really do what we just we're doing now feel it recognize it for what it is and you can kind of drink it in dwell in it and this is actually the the very practice of the eightfold path the practice of wise mindfulness of really seeing what's here and of wise effort of maintaining and developing these wholesome states that have arisen. So we're embedding what's wholesome. And it doesn't have to be big things. So there's a poem that I want to read, which is called Grace by the American poet Alice Walker. And grace is an interesting concept because, of course, it comes from the same root as gratitude. And uh, really, grace is, you know, we can, th- we can uh, have questions about who's grace and where does grace come from, but to me, grace is actually something in the, the way that I respond to experience uh, rather than a question of where or who is creating the experience. So she says, grace gives me a day too beautiful, I had thought, to stay indoors, and yet washing my dishes and straightening my shelves. Finally, throwing out the wilted onions, the shrunken garlic cloves. I discover I'm happy to be inside, looking out. This, I think, is wealth. Just this choosing of how a beautiful day is spent. So a real um, simplicity to that. So the gratitude that I'm speaking about, it's not positive thinking. Um, it's not like Jenny and I are trying to be the happy police for the weekend. <laughs> I found a book um, a few years ago, which I instantly bought, which was about this called Smile or Die by Barbara Ehrenreich, who's a, an American writer. And uh, she, she was a breast cancer survivor. And she was so um, irritated by the the whole culture of positive thinking, particularly around illness that she encountered, that she wrote this book called Smile or Die, just uh, um, berating berating this culture and really pleading for the right to own difficult experience and to acknowledge um, pain and sadness. And also showing how you know, a culture of positive thinking that negates all the, all the real problems that are out there and the difficulties that are out there can actually do enormous damage in society and also to the planet. So I really don't want to imply in the way that she was also critiquing that, um, you know, we, that there's no place for uh, difficult emotions Things like anger and sadness are really natural. And uh, one way I've heard it put, which I really like, is that a healthy psyche is one that has a good circulation. So to have a good circulation, you need all these elements need to be able to move around. And another word that I've come across recently is emo diversity like biodiversity but having a diversity of emotions so just as the the health of the planet requires some biodiversity the health of our organisms requires some emo diversity you know, so at times things happen that it's, it's very difficult to find anything to appreciate in and that's, that's true of those things but at such times if our minds can stay open to what there is around to appreciate in spite of this, then we notice that there are other good things that continue to happen. And it gives us a greater reservoir of well-being from which to um, hold, or in which to hold our difficulties. You know, for example, when you become seriously ill, um, we may begin to discover uh, a different kind of quality of appreciation of life or discover friends or support that we didn't know that we had. If we lose someone who's very important to us, you know, it's it's important to to allow the grief and the acknowledgement of the loss, but also we can turn our minds to remembering what they've brought to our lives and actually acknowledging uh, the blessings that they've brought with them and to celebrating. When we have difficulty, we can also see with time how perhaps our our difficulties have have made us into a wiser person and more able to be there for other people. So one person who's also made a a lifelong spiritual practice of of gratitude is a Benedictine monk called David Steindl Rust. He has a website called gratefulness.org. And one of the things which I I love that he says is that the greatest gift which is freely given us and which is the essence of all possibilities is the present moment. Gratitude precedes happiness, not the other way around. And he says that in any moment, even when we're confronted with something which doesn't merit gratitude and many things don't, we can be grateful for the opportunity to respond so he has a practice a sort of shorthand practice which he says gratefulness means stop look and go so becoming present and looking for the opportunity that's there in the present and then doing something with the opportunity And most of the time, that's the opportunity simply to enjoy what's present. But sometimes it actually means uh, taking a stand, protesting, or asking difficult questions. So gratitude actually resources us to respond to difficulties and to ask difficult questions. Joanna Macy, who's um, a very wonderful Buddhist teacher and environmental activist... Um, She teaches something called The Work That Reconnects. And her first step in this is to come from gratitude. So before undertaking a a difficult task or taking a stand on something to recognize what's there to appreciate. And that gratitude, really, for her and for David Steindl-Russ, it doesn't mean passivity, but it means uh, starting from a really solid ground. And I find it really interesting that both of them um, emphasize this activity of stopping as the first step in their approach. Because one of the biggest uh, obstacles to gratitude, I find, is a sense of being rushed or in a hurry. And that's why being on retreat is a really good opportunity to um, have the time to appreciate what's around us. I mean, it's amazing what's around us in in the garden at this time of year, in the world, and the, just the the little things that uh, in the in Gaia House that uh, the way that we're looked after, and the food, and you know we have a chance to really savor these different things, and also intentionally taking the time to to tune into gratitude also slows us down so it's a kind of virtuous circle so I've been uh, for the last um, two or three months I've been doing a daily gratitude practice with a friend where at the end of the day we text each other or email each other five things that we've appreciated during our day and it's been really uh, it's been really lovely and interesting and it's it's a really great thing to do with somebody else because you it's a lovely way to stay in touch with a friend and also you you kind of you get double the amount of gratitude and appreciation for your for your efforts. And then of course you remind each other to do it. So some of you have probably experimented with we'll do different kind of gratitude practices, but this is this is a really one that I'm really really enjoying. And it isn't always easy it's like some days I, i'm in a, a, the right zone and lots of lots of things come to mind some days i'm feeling down or preoccupied and i really have to stretch myself to remember oh yeah actually this thing was good and this thing was good and but it's amazing how doing that you start to have uh, the radar out for um things that you things that you notice to appreciate so uh, working on mindfulness and remembering to do it, and uh, overcoming my resistance. Sometimes you know I'm tired at the end of the day, and think, oh, but actually it always it feels good to do. And then also I notice how sometimes it you know it shows me the places where I'm not grateful. So sometimes even envy will come up. Like my friend will have done something really. That I think oh I'd have loved to have done that as well. Or um, you know, some aspect of her life which seems to me to be better than mine. So it does. It kind of. Um, it's very much like doing yoga or doing physical activity. It's we need to stretch our muscles and develop flexibility. But it also kind of in that process, there's a, there's an, uh you know we go into the places that are tense and tight. So sometimes it brings up self-pity or grumpiness or whatever. But I just go ahead and watch that, and I go ahead. And over time, it's having a really, um, really beautiful effect. So I think I had a sort of satellite dish this size, and now it's, it's kind of this size, and I could see the possibility of it getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's a, a, a possibility that I throw out there. Um, and it's not, uh, it's not to say this is a should. It's not that you, you should be grateful. You have to be grateful. It's more of a remembering that there's this, this channel that we can switch to. Uh, you can choose to switch to it from time to time, or it's a way of looking at things. So there's a, there's a um, famous sutta scripture, that we used to chant a lot in the monastery um, from the Buddha called his Discourse on the Highest Blessings where he talks about um, and I mentioned already that he says that gratitude, contentment and generosity are amongst the highest blessings and when we did this this chant or when I reflect on this chant, I used to very much hear it as a, a list of things that I should do and um, it's been really interesting to reorient myself to that and actually start to try and listen to it as, wow, these things are things that are really genuinely conducive to happiness. And actually, some of them are present in my life at the moment. Some of them, you know, these things are in different ways not unfamiliar to me and actually are they things that I can appreciate and enjoy rather than things that I tell myself I should have or should do and this is just from reframing my approach to it so I just I'm going to read it to you and just see what it's like to hear it as um, a list of things blessings that may be present in your life and if they are in some way then just uh, acknowledging that and appreciating it, and don't hear it. Or if you do tend to hear it as a list of "I should do something," then just notice that, and you can you can drop it. "Should" is not a helpful uh, word in our practice. So this actually this is this is a particular an adaptation of the the English translation that's taken from um, a chapter in. James Baraz's book *Awakening Joy*, which is called *Thanks to Life*, which is an interesting—you know—he puts it in there. So, the Buddha was asked by a visiting angel, in fact, um, who said that angels and or devas, angels, Buddhist angels, and humans are concerned with happiness, and tell us what is, what are the highest sources of happiness. So, the Buddha replied, "It's a great blessing to spend company in the time." Th- to spend time in the company of wise people and to honor those who are worthy, to live in a place that's good for you, to do good deeds and to keep yourself going in the right direction, to be well educated, to develop your skills, to train yourself in discipline and to use words carefully and beautifully, to take good care of your mother and father to cherish your partner and children and to engage in a livelihood that's harmless. To give generously to others, to live with integrity and to care for the people you consider your family. To avoid doing harm, to be careful with intoxicants and to develop wholesome states of mind. To be respectful, humble, content and grateful and to regularly bring spiritual teachings into your life. To be patient, open to learning, to be in touch with people on a spiritual path and to discuss spiritual teachings, to live simply and in a pure way, to understand the deepest truth and to realize the highest freedom and happiness. To have a mind that's steady, unswayed by the ups and downs of life, free of sorrow and shame and at peace. Those who act in these ways cannot be dragged down. Everywhere they go, they find well-being. So, you know, this is a, this is a big checklist, but there are things on there that even just being here this weekend, you know, we're manifesting many of those things for ourselves. And can we really uh, register what a, what a blessing it is? So, you know, instead of uh, my thinking, oh, I really, you know, I, sh- I should be hanging out with wise people, actually, isn't it amazing that, uh, that there are these good and wise friends that I am spending time with some of the time when I'm spending time with them? Um, you know, isn't it, isn't it good to notice that I'm slightly more equanimous than I used to be? Isn't it good to register that I've actually done something generous here? So one of the reasons also that I share this is it's useful to understand what, um, what things are really conducive to happiness because our appreciation, our idea of what to be, what to be grateful for actually matures and develops as we, um, as we become wiser. So I'll talk about that a, a bit uh, later. So I've been, I've been speaking about gratitude, but I also want to talk about generosity. And the, the two things are really, uh, they often co-arise, don't they? So I don't know whether some of you might have seen this story in the, in the press recently, but there was a, a story that I found very sweet about an eight-year-old girl in Seattle called Gabby, Gabby Mann, and from the time she was about four years old, her mother used to give her snacks in her pushchair, and she would uh, be dropping, she would she'd drop snacks, and the local crows would be following her pushchair around and coming and picking up the food as she as she dropped it, and she, for some reason, she she kind of liked the crows. She wasn't one of these children or people who are scared of birds like some of my family (laughs) are and they started this practice of actually intentionally feeding the crows and they have a bird bath in the back of their garden and it got to the point where they were putting out food every day on on a regular basis for the crows and the crows would line up on the washing line overhead and wait for the food to come out and they would do this and then suddenly all these little gifts started appearing on the birdbath and in the garden. And the crows were bringing, when they found little beautiful objects, they were bringing them and leaving them as presents for the family. And this little girl, this eight-year-old, has this enormous collection that was photographed of all the things like the earrings and uh, paper clips, and all sorts of sparkly things that the crows had bought her as presents And uh, they have this really beautiful relationship. So this gratitude and generosity, it kind of transcends species, even. And then at one time, her mother was out photographing. Her mother's a keen photographer, and she was out photographing, I think some other kinds of birds, actually, a few blocks away. And she dropped her lens cap, and she left it there. And the next day, they found it back on the edge of the birdbath, and they had a web webcam in their gardens, and she thought, "I think one of the, you know, one of the crows has brought it back." And saw it, Sure enough, they looked on the on the recording, and they saw that the crow had picked up the the um, lens cap, brought it back, and actually washed washed it in the bird bath, and then <laughs> left it there on the side of the bath. And um, so the crows had been looking out for them. So I just it, that just made me so happy to hear this story actually. So. So this joy of giving is is really fundamental, and this is why the Buddha said this is something that everybody can tap into. You know, even even the most diehard criminal or gangster usually uh, loves to do good things for their their family, their friends. Um, But you might remember, you know things that you've done in the past that have really brought you a sense of gladness acts of generosity or the first time that you had the experience of oh generosity this is what this feels like i remember um when my little sister i think it was her fourth or fifth birthday uh saving up all my pocket money with my other sister to buy her a nurse's outfit that she wanted that was in the local toy shop and um you know it cost all our savings to do this but we were so excited about it and I just remember the anticipation of how much she was going to love this nurse's outfit with her the little apron and the hat it was one of those really old-fashioned ones and the the little pin on clock and things and uh, just it's it's really struck stayed with me in my mind because uh, it was just uh, such a a joyful and exciting thing to do. So, of course, we we grow up beyond giving uh, nurses' outfits and so on. And there, there are many other kinds of things that we can give. So not just material things, but our time and our attention, our care, empathy, protection, support, love, wisdom, appreciation, and also often actually being open to receiving things from others is also a gift. You know what it's like when you, you give somebody something and they're kind of dismissive of what, you, what you've given them. You know, it, it, it's a gift to receive. And also expressing gratitude is like an act of generosity as well. So the Dharma has always thrived and been transmitted in a, in a culture that valued gratitude and generosity. The Buddha set up the, the, the rules for the monastic community that they had to, uh, they couldn't go and withdraw, but they had to stay in relationship with lay people. And they weren't allowed to either to store up food for themselves or to uh, keep money. So they were... In, dependent on this daily exchange of generosity with lay people and people would feed them and in return for that then they would share their practice and their teachings so this this whole thing kind of um took off in a culture that was designed to support uh generosity and goodwill because this is healthy not only for society but for um individual hearts so in the buddha's time of course and in traditional societies then the the often money was not a regularly used thing so uh, not everybody would always have access to to gold and silver or to to money and in some cultures today this this still continues so um I met a, a Nigerian woman the other weekend who was talking about her growing up as a young girl in Nigeria and living with her grandmother till, till the age of eight because her parents were away working somewhere else. And the grandmother wasn't wealthy, but every evening when they'd have their evening meal, and often there wasn't a huge amount of food, but anybody who passed by the house at that time when they were eating was invited in to come and share the meal and I just thought that was really beautiful, and this woman had had really learned a quality of generosity and sharing from this grandmother so sometimes I think that you know and we can see all sorts of instances of this that the um, uh the monetary economy has kind of taken the soul out of our out of our interactions with each other, it becomes very sort of casual and functional. And we, we forget to notice the actual giving and receiving that's involved in, in our um, interchanges. So when I, when I was a nun and practiced this without you know, not handling money for some years, it gave me a whole new sense of, of what it's like um, to give and to receive. And, and you have few, few requisites and few possessions as a nun. And so it becomes really... Um, you have much or I have developed much more of a sense of appreciation of what I had and um, noticing an awareness of of when people gave things or shared things and we would we would share things amongst amongst ourselves as a community um, and I really appreciate having had that opportunity to train in that way and also how cultures like the culture at Gaia House try to keep that alive with the um, with the practice of dana. because i think it's a it's a question for all of us in our practice is like what can we do to keep this world or to make this world a more benevolent place to live in how can we keep these sort of heart qualities alive how can we maximize the soul in our relationships So gratitude practice, like like gratitude practice, generosity practice also feels like stretching a muscle sometimes. It reveals places where we feel constricted, um, where it's difficult. So if we give out of fear or obligation, then that's not real generosity because real generosity is unconditional. There's a difference um, between giving something away because you kind of don't want it anymore, you've got no more use for it, and giving something that's actually difficult to give. So the first, the former, the Buddha called discarding, and that's not really generosity. It's like, you know, giving my old, old pair of jeans that I don't want anymore to the charity shop. It's very different from giving my absolute favorite new piece of clothing away to, to my best friend because I think they'll look great in it or something. Yeah. So there are many things that we can give that it, it, it's difficult to give. And often we get an impulse to, to do something generous and for various reasons we don't act on it. Uh, maybe we get a second thought or we feel shy or we we start to um, you know, doubt whether this is really the right thing to do um, or find, find sorts of reasons for not going ahead with the impulse of generosity. And Joseph Goldstein, who's one of my teachers in the States, um, he has a, a very wonderful practice that he shares of always acting he made a determination that he would always act on a general generous impulse rather than just let it you know rise up and die down again and uh, that rather like I think like doing the gratitude practices stretches you but it also it also brings all sorts of unexpected uh, joy and sometimes of course it's maybe not so appropriate or helpful to act on on a generous impulse you know you may have doubts about giving giving money to someone who's going to use it in a way that's harmful for them but you could still act on that impulse in another way. So you could think, okay, I, I'm not going to give money to this person in this situation, but I've had this sense of wanting to do something, and maybe I can give them something else, or I can do something, something for a person in a similar situation. So there's always, you know, ways that we can to, can do this, can play with this. And I think for me, one of one of the edges that I have is. Uh, I'm I'm quite a shy person, and uh, sometimes to actually express my gratitude to people, I'm shy about expressing gratitude. But that's that's an area where I think I could challenge myself more. So, as I've said a couple of times, that with both gratitude and generosity is our understanding of what they really are. it, mean, it, it matures and it develops as we do. So dharma is really the art of becoming skilled in happiness. We learn to appreciate more and more, um, more reliable states of happiness. And we develop a taste for more reliable states of happiness, which leads to a, a letting go of the lesser ones, and there's, thus the more wisdom that's operating, then the more beneficial our gratitude and generosity are going to be because we, we are attuned not only to the material fruits of our actions, but also how they impact on our on our states of mind. Because the state of mind becomes more interesting sometimes than the externals. And we start to see this in other people too, so it's not just ourselves so then the thought might be well how can i how can i give this person what's really conducive to their long-term well-being and to their deeper happiness so as one of the things i've mentioned is sometimes it's generous simply to receive what another person is trying to to give me sometimes The most generous thing we can do is to exercise some restraint in a certain situation. So even non-harming or the, the precepts that we talked about last night are also an act of generosity. And these things all apply not only in my relationship to other people but in my relationship to myself. So there's a, another, another Pali word for generosity is chaga, which is also the word for relinquishment. So dhana, this, this word for generosity that maybe you're more familiar with, means giving, and chaga means giving up. So practicing generosity is also linked to renunciation, which is a way of freeing ourselves from possessiveness and attachment. And I think about it as letting go into the flow of life. So you could say that you could sort of see gratitude as opening us up to the flow of life. And generosity keeps it flowing. It stops it from kind of plugging up and stopping with us. And renunciation is a word that can trigger all sorts of responses in us, of course, um, and even the Buddha struggled with renunciation, he said, in the, in the early days, he said, my heart did not leap up at the thought of renunciation. But it was only when he began to realize the drawbacks of certain kind of pleasures and the benefits of letting them go and the higher pleasure that resulted that he could begin to do it. So this weekend, you're all doing a fair bit of renunciate practice. We all are. So just sitting through a period of meditation takes some renunciation. And yet you've all signed up for this and you're, you're willing to do it, um, presumably because you intuit or understand that there's something more desirable than immediate comfort or gratification. So already we, we all know that there's a, um, a or we, we sense that there's a possibility of happiness that is actually beyond this immediate getting what I getting what I want. So um, there's a a neuropsychologist uh, and Buddhist teacher called Rick Hansen, who some of you might have come across, and he has a book called Hardwiring Happiness. Um, And in it he talks about the way that we can retrain our mind um, to look for and notice the benefits that the choice that of renunciation actually brings, so rather than dwelling on what we 've given up in, in order to be here or uh, in, the, in a particular situation, we actually look for what am I really appreciating the benefit of of the payoff of this so a kind of uh, an example would be if you if you attempted to have another piece of toast at tea time and you choose not to have it you can either sort of linger with the thought oh I wish I'd had the other piece of toast I really fancied that other piece of toast and then you keep replaying in your mind I wish I'd had another piece of toast that would have been so nice okay I must remember to have a piece of toast at breakfast time or something and then you're stuck with that or you can actually choose to shift the focus to OK, well, what's the fruit of having refrained from having my extra piece of toast? You know, I feel a sense of lightness in my body and a sense of, OK, I've had just what I needed. Yeah. And you can start to feel some contentment. So there's a choice about which which sort of thoughts we dwell on. And actually, the more that we let the thoughts of contentment um, take up the wavelength in our mind, then there's less room for the other ones to uh, come in. So there's less room for dissatisfaction and and fantasies about what's missing. And of course, this doesn't just apply to toast, it applies across the spectrum. (laughs) So noticing uh, what's pleasant uh, in terms of the choices that you've made rather than um, what's missing... So if you're if you're resonating with appreciation you'll notice more appreciation and if you're resonating with being disgruntled then you'll probably notice more disgruntlement. So I really encourage you this weekend to notice moments of appreciation both generally and also if you catch yourself appreciating the peacefulness of making sim- choices to simplify things and to let go of particular distractions or habits. Because every time that you do this, no matter how small, we're rewiring, we're enforcing the circuitry in our in our minds of um, the pathways of contentment. And that's kind of neuroscience babble or lay neuroscience babble for exactly what the Buddha said, which is that whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders, that will become the inclination of their mind. So for the same reasons, it's also really um, helpful to notice moments when the mind's at peace. So moments of temporary freedom from grasping, freedom from aversion, freedom from uh, discontent, and freedom from confusion. So the Buddha pointed to the fact that there is a, there's a joy that comes from enunciation. There's a joy that comes from um, moral restraint and freedom from remorse and a joy that comes from generosity. And actually that reflecting on these qualities in ourselves is a really uh, skillful and wholesome thing to do. So that sort of recollection is not very familiar to us often. It's like, you know, we tend to think that Bigging ourselves up um, is, is definitely not very British. Um, and we, t- we have a kind of tendency to downplay our good qualities. And it's much easier often to celebrate good qualities in other people than it is in ourselves because we're afraid maybe of getting inflated or whatever. But the Buddha said, no, uh, it's really important to recollect your own good qualities so recollect your generosity, recollect your um, ethical conduct. Because doing the opposite is really, you know, putting oneself down is as much of an, I mean, he didn't say this, this is what I'm saying, is, is as, as much of an ego trip as, uh, you know, inflating yourself. So all these, these things, like we practice loving kindness, and the way that we practice loving kindness is equally to all beings as to myself. The same with our gratitude, general appreciation, and generosity. We we practice it towards others, but also towards ourselves. There isn't one standard for people out there and one standard for this being here. So the Buddha said, I quote something that he said, this was in a conversation with a layman called Mahanama. Uh, Mahanama was asking him about... How do people dwell? How do people behave when they've arrived at the fruit of and understood the teaching? And the Buddha said, Mahanama, a noble disciple recollects his own generosity thus. It's It's a gain for me. It's well gained by me. That I dwell with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess. Freely generous open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. And the Buddha went on to say, when a noble disciple recollects his or her own generosity thus, on that occasion her mind is not obsessed by greed, hatred or delusion. Her mind is straight with generosity as its object. A noble disciple whose mind is straight, gains the inspiration of the meaning, the inspiration of the Dharma, gains gladness connected with the Dharma. When she is gladdened, rapture arises. For one uplifted by rapture, the body becomes calm. One calm in body feels happy. And for one who is happy, the mind becomes concentrated. so this is um, this is an important thing to remember and then it's not in this in this particular bit of teaching but many times elsewhere uh, the Buddha goes on to say that the, this, this sequence of, of uh, the, the body becoming calm, the mind becoming concentrated and the mind becoming happy and the mind becoming concentrated the mind that's concentrated is the mind that sees things as they actually are when it sees things as it they actually are. It knows what to let go of and finds freedom. So developing this, we have the capacity for more and more refined states of happiness. And as our mindfulness and wisdom develop, we, we see how even holding on to and chasing after happy mind states actually creates a subtle level of suffering. So we start to let go and uh, life can flow through us more deeply and abundantly. So we can use these, these practices of gratitude and generosity and contentment to begin to chip away at this sense of deficiency and lack and to um, break out of this, this cycle of, of craving. So we've moved... You've moved away, all of us have moved away from um, this kind of approach to life that Rockefeller, the uh, great American industrialist, who was, when he was the richest man in the world, uh, he was asked, how much is going to be enough for you? And he said, just a little bit more. <laughs> and you know, we, we kind of decided, all of us, to step out of that mindset, I think, so maybe our question here as practitioners is not like what's going to be enough, but just right now in this moment, what, what do I need in this moment to be at peace with myself? And if we, if we build this, this climate of kindness, of generosity, um, of appreciation, this supports us. In this this undertaking. So, um, at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California, where I where I go quite often at the moment, at um, the at the gate as you walk in, there's a, a prayer wheel that somebody's built, which is a kind of octagonal drum, and uh, people like to just start rotating it as they walk past and they go through the gate. And on each of the eight faces, it's got one of the steps of the Eightfold path, and so you you touch it on one and you start turning it, and the whole the whole thing starts to revolve and I feel this is a bit the same with all these practices of kindness of gratitude of generosity it's like you just pick up one part of it um, one one piece where you feel like I've got traction at the moment and I can engage with it, and as you as you nudge things in that direction, the whole wheel of your practice, um, it moves. So I think I've, I've really talked long enough, uh, but I just encourage you to, um, if any part of this has spoken to you, to play with picking it up and see how that uh, keeps the wheel of your practice turning So, let's just sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening.